Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our series, The Progress of the Gospel, studying the book of Romans, chapter 11, verses 12 to 20. Let's join Dr. Neufeld as he introduces us to a message entitled, Grafted In. When my kids were growing up, we had an annual ritual every Christmas. We drive out to a Christmas tree farm to get our tree, and, and I always like going out to one of those farms where you cut your own tree because, well, first of all, it seemed cool and Christmassy, but it also assured us that we'd have as fresh a tree as possible, and it was easy to last for the entire season without dropping its needles. And when my son got a little older, I'd allow him to cut down the tree because the Christmas tree farm would, would provide the saw. And this was an excellent arrangement for me because, well, I live on Canada's west coast and it's often raining around Christmas time. I would hold an umbrella over my head and I'd watch my son saw down the tree, getting utterly drenched in the process. I always thought that was an admirable arrangement because I was dry and he was wetter than a fish. And I knew his mom would take care of his wet clothing, so I always felt I had the best deal of anyone. Now, please don't write me emails about why I should have taken more responsibility with my children. I know, I know I'm a bad man. Well, we'd bring the tree home and we would drag it into the house and put it on a stand and provide water and decorate it. Well, you know, all the things that you do to a Christmas tree, we did them all. But then when Christmas was over and as happy as Kathy had been when we had dragged that tree into the house, she was now telling us that we ought to be dragging it right back out of the house. Well, I knew we couldn't take back to the stump where my son had sawed it down. That wouldn't work, so we began to look in the paper for someone who was chipping Christmas trees. And by now, the tree was getting dry and the needles were starting to fall off, and soon this thing would be a fire hazard. It turns out that the moment my son cut off the tree from its roots, that tree started to die. There was no recovery. But all of you know this. It's no huge revelation to anyone when I say, remove a tree from its roots. And though it may look lovely and healthy at the beginning, and no matter how nice it looks, it's dying. No roots, no life. Didn't matter how much water we provided, this thing would not last. And that, I think, is an analogy of our faith. No roots, no life. I say this because there are some Christians who forget this. For them, their faith is no more than their personal relationship with Jesus. Now, let me be clear. Unless you have a personal relation with Jesus, you're not a believer. But if you want to sustain that relationship, you can't be disconnected from your roots. And your roots are decidedly Jewish, going down deeply into the accounts of Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah. Now, we've been studying Romans 9 to 11, and I've alluded several times to the truth that the roots of Christianity are Jewish. And this, while obvious from anyone who reads the Bible, has been all but denied many times in the history of the church. How often has it been that Christians have forgotten that they owe to Israel an infinite debt of gratitude? I've pointed out in the past that church leaders have in history treated non-Christian Jews in hideous and horrible ways. Church in the Middle Ages called them Christ killers. They demanded that Jews convert or suffer persecution. In fact, and this is shameful, but I must say it, Martin Luther himself, founder of the Protestant Reformation in his later years, was becoming deeply anti-Semitic. 
In his tract entitled Concerning the Jews and Their Lies, he urged Christians to burn down Jewish homes, seize their wealth, and enslave their young men with hard labor. See, I hang my head in shame when I hear those words. Now, I hasten to add that in his younger years, Luther was not like that at all. Then he talked about our debt of gratitude. Indeed, he even said that he understood why many Jews had not been converted, given their shameful treatment at the hands of the church. I have wondered whether or not in his later years Luther was affected by dementia, but even so, this language is not only unacceptable, it's an attack on our own faith. In fact, I think of a poem written by a Jew to a Christian, very simple, very pointed. Here's what it says. How odd of God to choose the Jew, but not so odd as those who choose the Jewish God and hate the Jew. Indeed, well said. We've come to Romans 11, 12 to 20, and before I read it, let me put it into context. In our study of Romans 9 to 11, a study I've called The Progress of the Gospel, we've noticed an amazing interplay. On the one hand, the gospel progresses entirely because of the sovereign will of God or the election of God. From the election of Abraham to the election of Jacob over Esau to the rejection of Pharaoh, God has caused the gospel to grow according to his eternal design and plans. It was God's sovereign will to choose a people unto himself. And in Romans 9, we've noticed that the progress of the gospel is about God's work. But on the other hand, in Romans 10, we've noticed that God demands that preachers go out and proclaim the gospel, for if they do not do so, the world will not believe. Now, while I've stressed the importance of both of those themes, God's eternal sovereign choice and the human necessity to preach, I find also that interlaced with this are the roots of our faith and how God has designed the gospel to progress. And so we find as Israel's rejection of the gospel, or as Paul will say in Romans 11, verse 7, that they were hardened, or in verse 8, that God gave them a spirit of stupor, that because of this, the gospel has come to the Gentiles. This was according to God's design, for if Israel would not have rejected their Messiah, the Gentile mission would never have begun. Israel's persecution of the followers of Christ forced the gospel to go out into the Gentile world, where it would grow exponentially. Let's start reading our text for today. I'll read Romans 11, verses 12 to 16. It's speaking of Israel. Now, if their trespasses means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch, then, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now that word in verse 12, translated as full inclusion, that is, that in spite of Israel's rejection of the gospel, there is yet hope for their full inclusion. Now that phrase, full inclusion, is actually properly translated simply as fullness. So then, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? What does that mean? What is this fullness of Israel that Paul is speaking about? 
Now, for some, the word means no more than that the full number of the Jewish elect would be before the throne. In other words, the full number of Jewish followers of Jesus, without reference to however many there were, are brought into their eternal reward. But for others, the term means that in the end times or in the millennium, there will be a national revival in Israel so that the nation as a whole will turn to Christ. People who believe this look at verse 26 in which God promises to banish ungodliness from Jacob. And so hold out the hope that God still has a wonderful work to perform among the natural descendants of Abraham. I myself hold this second position because I'm convinced that this is what Romans 11 teaches. Now, Douglas Moo, commenting on verse 12, says, Paul would be suggesting that the present defeat of Israel, in which Israel is numerically reduced to a small remnant, will be reversed by the addition of a far greater number of true believers. This will be Israel's destined fullness. Well, perhaps, or perhaps also a great company of Jewish believers, a fullness is still waiting to be evangelized, that God has promised a great evangelistic ingathering among the Jewish people in the future. Now, if that's right, that a fullness of Israel is waiting to come in, there is therefore something that yet awaits the Jewish people. It will happen in his timing. God will once again visit his chosen people with mercy. That we who have received the gospel because of their disobedience will witness God returning back to his ancient people and pour out on them a spirit that will cause them to come to him. Now, those who agree with me on this position sometimes disagree with when exactly this will occur. And at this point in our study of Romans, that's really not the issue. I think what is at issue is that God has not forgotten his ancient promises to the natural descendants of Israel. And so today, every Gentile follower of Jesus waits with eager longing. We got the faith because they rejected it. But we have not become disconnected from the roots of our faith, nor have we forgotten where our faith comes from, and so we await yet for God to do His full work. Dr. Neufeld will be back in just a moment. The New Testament Greece by Land and by Sea Tour will be a true vacation and spiritual experience. Visiting some of the most significant and beautiful locations in Greece and the Greek islands, you'll be refreshed and inspired by both the historic and biblical relevance under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, and encouraged by special guests Phil Calloway of Laugh Again and musical guests The Weebs. So join us for 12 days, 8 by land and 4 by sea this coming April 24th to May 5th. Space is now very limited, so call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Paul has been saying that Israel's hardness or her rejection of the Messiah was to the advantage of the Gentiles, then if that's so, What will be the upshot of Israel's fullness? So let me put that in my own words. If the Gentiles were blessed by Israel's harsh treatment and unrepentant rejection of Jesus, what will happen when in the time to come, 
Their sinful hearts are softened when, as Zechariah the prophet would say, they look on him whom they have pierced and mourn coming back to him. What will that mean? Well, says Paul, it means at least two things. First, it means life from the dead. You know, like that Christmas tree that I cut from its roots when it was destined to die, their future is not like that. God will, by virtue of his ability to raise the dead, raise them again. One hears shades here of Ezekiel 37, when God took Ezekiel the prophet to a valley of dry bones and asked him, Son of man, can these bones live? From a human perspective, well, they can't, but God raises the dead. I'm reading Romans 11, 15 to 16. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, the last part of this passage is a quote taken from Numbers 15, verses 17 to 21. The original text was an instruction given to Israel who was about to enter the promised land. When they ate the first bread taken from the land they entered, they were to present it to the Lord as a first fruit. Now, the idea being that they were to offer it to the Lord as a thank offering because there's a whole awful lot more bread where that came from. This was the first fruit, the first offering of an abundance to follow. So let's concentrate on those two images presented in verse 16. The first, as we've said, is the image of the bread dough offered up as first fruits. Now, that image would have been very easily understood by Jews. A priest would take a part of the bread dough and offer it up to God as holy, as an acceptable and holy offering to God. And here's the question. If a part of that bread dough was acceptable to God, no doubt the whole lump where it came from was just as acceptable to God. And Paul uses a second image built on that first one. The second image is the image that dominates the rest of this passage. Just as the whole lump of bread is holy, so if the whole root is holy, so are the branches. He's saying that if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are holy, so are the rest of their offspring, the people of Israel, or the natural descendants of the patriarchs. Now, in order to understand that illustration, we have to take note of what he is not saying. Paul is not saying that every Jew has their sins forgiven, is accepted in heaven because they can trace their ancestry back to Abraham. See, the Bible denies that. Remember John the Baptist? He was calling Jews to repent, and here's what he said in Matthew 3, verse 9. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words... Just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're right with God. And Paul repeats that same theme back in Romans 9, verse 7. There he said, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. That has been a dominant theme in Romans 9 to 11. Israel is being hardened. She has rejected her Messiah. So let me make this clear. Being a Jew does not make you right with God. Well, if that's so... What does Paul mean when he says, if the root is holy, so are the branches? And Paul's using the term holy here, I think, in a very specialized way. He means set apart. He means that the Jews will always have a special role to play in God's dealings with the whole human race. They're chosen by God to be divine examples of God's dealings with all of us. That's their call, and they'll never get away from that. Now, from that metaphor... 
of a root and branches of an olive tree, Paul provides Gentile Christians with a metaphor that we've got to remember. The root is the sacred history of our faith today. If you're a believer, you are one who comes from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Your faith grows in richness as we learn of Moses and Joshua and David and Ruth and Solomon, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so forth. The fact is, you can't fully understand your faith until you dive deeply into your root system, which is Jewish. That's the root. Now, Paul takes us to the next level of thought. I'm now reading Romans 11, 17 to 18. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Let's stop there and consider an image that the first readers of this passage would have been very familiar with. It's called grafting. It's a process that's still practiced by those who work with fruit trees today. Grafting is a process of uniting two different plants so that they grow together as one. If you've ever seen a branch grafted into another fruit tree, it really does look quite impressive. A branch from one tree is implanted into another one so that they appear to grow as a single plant. Now, this is the key to Paul's analogy. The wild olive tree in the Middle East was, in fact, of no value. What I mean to say is that it did bear fruit, but that fruit was entirely inedible. The point Paul is trying to make, I think, to us Gentile Christians is to say this. We have absolutely nothing to contribute to the tree. Or I guess we bear no useful fruit for God. But then look at verse 17 and look at the phrase, now share in the nourishing root. So here is the first thing we learn about the wild branches. They need the root. I know this is a strange thought for some of us. For some of us, this seems to fly into the face of our own faith. All I need is Jesus, we say. But think about that. When Jesus died for our sins, where in fact did he die? You know, the answer is, he died on the ancient site of Mount Moriah, where Abraham offered his son Isaac on an altar, and where God stopped him and said, don't offer your son, for God has provided a lamb. Jesus is the lamb that Abraham oversaw. See, the same is true when David purchased that same piece of ground and sacrificed on it in order to stop a plague. Jesus is the sacrifice that stops the plague of God's wrath against us. And what does the death of Jesus mean? See, you can't know until we learn about the law that came through Moses and what God's standards are and why we are declared sinners. We can't know about God's forgiveness until we visit the Old Testament tabernacle and see the sacrificial system that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You can't understand what benefit his suffering can bring to you until you read Isaiah's Song of the Suffering Servant in Isaiah 53. You don't know what it means to submit to his lordship and his rulership until you read the account of King David and how it has been transferred over to Jesus. In fact, let me add a thought. The entire New Testament from front to last is in fact a commentary, an explanation, a revelation of what the First Testament means. 
Jesus has explained the true meaning of the Old Testament. The entire message of Christ is the message of the First Testament come from God, is the very message that the patriarchs, the the lawgiver, the Psalms, the prophets were trying to teach us. That is the root. And if you're a Gentile believer in Jesus, you're useless. You're unproductive. You're unfruitful, wild olive branch that now gets nourished from the tree of Israel. Your culture as a Gentile has nothing to contribute. Your history has nothing to do with God choosing a people for himself. Your unnatural life and history are now grafted in to the only root that can give life. When Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob become the root of the people from China or from Brazil or from Iran, see, can you see this? Something unnatural has occurred, but it has occurred. Israel's dry, unfruitful branches were broken off, and room on the tree was made for you. Think about it. And if that's so, what will happen when those dead, dry branches lying at the base of the tree are grafted in again? Well, any horticulturalist will say, well, nothing of the kind can happen. Those branches will remain dead. But Ezekiel 37 has God asking, can these bones live? Indeed, what will their fullness bring? Well, keep on listening. In the progress and in the advance of the gospel, God has reserved still one more amazing thing. John, a great message today. Can I ask you a question, though? Why are we so quick to discount the Old Testament or what you call the First Testament in today's society? We're we're quick to say, well, that's old stuff. That's not relevant anymore. Only the New Testament. But certainly, that's not what you're saying today. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's one of the reasons why I, I have taken to calling what we have traditionally called the Old Testament, to call it the First Testament. But let me also say that it's really not possible to understand the New Testament until we read and understand, internalize the first 39 books of our Bible. Uh, the, the New Testament is plump full of quotations from the first 39 books. We're also well served to remember that the early church, which didn't yet have the New Testament written, simply preached the Old Testament in the light of Jesus. So they were Old Testament preachers who had learned how Jesus related to that. So if we remember this, I think we'll do more to uh, to put these things together. And, and let me also say that I know we're talking about um, the, the Bible calendar that we put out in which we encourage people to read through their entire Bible. And sometimes, you know, I've been criticized in the past and say, you know, there's so much time taken reading the Old Testament. And my response is, uh, we desperately need to reacquaint ourselves with the revelation of God, which roots our faith down and gives it staying power. So, you know, those are some of my thoughts about how important these things are to remember. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow at Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Our 2017 Bible reading calendar, Defining Moments in Our Faith, is now available. The theme celebrates the 500th anniversary of the Reformation and the many important changes that occurred in the church. 
wonderful scenic photos of significant European locations, and a reminder of the five solas that outline for us the fundamental truths of our faith. This is a calendar you'll want to have for home or for the office, and the first one is free for every household. So call us today for yours at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or email us at info at backtothebible.ca.